Good morning. You guys would break out your Bibles or your apps, whatever you use to turn to the Word of God. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 with me. I know I'm probably going to forget to say this towards the end of the service, but uh, I probably should not venture here and using Sam as an example, because Sam is an example today, except in the part that he's leaving. Other than that, he's an example to us. Don't, don't do what he's doing by leaving, breaking our hearts. This is miserable, isn't it? I'm looking at his mom and dad right now. Uh, yeah, I told Sam I'm saying goodbye once, once. Uh, Sam has been in this church and part of our lives since he was a teenager and uh, just to have walked that length of time and through the various aspects of that journey together and then to entrust him to where God is leading he and his family. Uh, Abby gets to stay here with us for a while so we don't have to be miserable about Abby leaving just yet. But we do get to be miserable about Sam. But Sam did something I do want to use as an example. Not leaving. Remember, not leaving is not a good example. Um, but, you know, he asked if, if the elders could pray for him this morning uh, in, in what God's called him to do. So we're going to do that for him afterwards. But it, that just highlights, you know, there are significant things going on in your lives that you're bringing with you this morning. They're just traveling with you. You're doing life. And you have significant moments in your life that it is appropriate and even necessary that you would ask for prayer in some of those areas. So please don't walk in here on Sunday morning. It's like, man, there's something major going on in my life. And you don't feel like this is the place where you can ask somebody to join with you before the throne of God and ask God for his grace and provision in the days ahead. So maybe if you're here this morning and you're like, man, I'm glad you said that. There is something really significant. Come, come forward after the service and, and we hang out here for quite a while. The elders are available. Prayer team members are available to pray for you afterwards. So please avail yourself of that. All right, well, before I, I read this passage, um, you know, when we read the word of God, and we, and we, we get some insight from God, we become a, aware of this rich treasure that's available to our lives. Right? There's this abundance of grace from God that's available to our lives. There's this encounter with the love, the personal love of God in our lives that's like no one else and nothing else that we could ever experience. There is a peace that passes understanding that comes to us. There is joy unspeakable and full of glory. So if I, we're aware of these things. The Bible speaks about these things. We've been taught on these things. But if I just were to ask you just really honestly, how near do those things feel to you right now? In your experience? How much are you accessing that? To where you could say, yeah, this, this week there was this experience. Or, uh, yeah, regularly lately there's just been this experiencing. I, I think we'd all, for the most part, agree that, that sometimes we know a whole lot more than we're getting around to living and experiencing. And that's what makes a message like today a, a, a helpful, insightful dimension that... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to label what we're about to read about, about fellowship. It's, it's a passage about fellowship, although, quite honestly, if most of you read the heading that's in your Bible, it's going to probably say the Lord's Supper or something close to that, because it's one of the few places in the New Testament beyond 
Jesus sharing about the Lord's Supper that the the Lord's Supper actually gets unpacked. And so, very helpful. So I'm going to unpack that next week. But this week, I just want you to pay attention to something that, that what's, what's Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? What's his main reason for writing this text? And I'd have to say, I don't think his main reason was so much to explain to us the Lord's Supper, although he's going to do that. He's got another agenda here. And it has to do with fellowship. And for them, it has to do with their dysfunctional fellowship. So I titled the message, Fixing Fellowship. This is a message about fixing fellowship because fellowship is one of the things, not the only thing, it's one of the things that brings everything I just described near to us as an encounter, as a reality. An encounter with the presence of God and the love of God and the grace of God and the joy of God and the peace of God. We we need to know that God has set things in our lives that are a means to that. How do we get to that. Well, fellowship and what God had in mind is a means. That's why fellowship is one of our hills to die on. A bunch of things in the Bible that we can agree to disagree on, but there are some things around here we call them hills to die on because they are things that we cannot lose. They are essentials to the Christian faith and to the mission that we're on together, and fellowship is one of them. So, all right, assignment for you as I'm reading through this passage. What was the point, Paul, Holy Spirit, why were you writing this passage? Let's start in verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 11. Paul says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat in and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way he took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this. As often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. For when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. 
about the other things, I will give directions when I come. Lord, again, these are your chosen words and realities that you have written down for us and for your people through the ages. Lord, I'm sure if we put a video camera in the town of Corinth in the meetings, there would be many things, many things from their lives to talk about. You chose this one. Lord, let it impart grace and help to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm not sure I'd be super excited about hearing the Apostle Paul tell me, come to visit. Let's imagine he came to visit our church and this is what he had to say to the elders on the way out. This is actually the New International Greek New Testament translation says, the meetings you hold as a church do more harm than good. That's one translation. I'd like to have the Apostle Paul tell you that. So this is a church that we've already known, full of troubles, full of problems. There's a lot of correction going on in this setting. Why not just shut the doors on this place? This place feels so problematic. We just encounter one problem after another. Why not just close the doors on this place, for goodness sake? Paul, why don't you just tell these guys to shut the thing down? Isn't it interesting that Paul doesn't do that? Now, I'm going to read you a thought here from an author. author I actually enjoy and like reading. Uh, He's a pastor who at one point, the story in his life was that he was leading a very successful church, having an enormous impact, etc. But he he writes this book explaining why he left that church and, and really kind of went to start over again in some ways in his ministry as a pastor. And the introductory section in his book is t- titled The Departure, and it's an explanation of why he just walked away from that church. This is what he says. He says, imagine you find yourself stranded on a deserted island with nothing but a copy of the Bible. You have no experience with Christianity whatsoever. And all you know about the church will come from your reading of the Bible. How would you imagine a church to function? Seriously. Close your eyes for two minutes and try to picture church as you would know it. Now, think about your current church experience. Is it even close? Can you live with that? Now, I get where he's coming from right there. And I'm pretty sure I've sounded that way. I I would especially sound that way if I was picking up Acts chapter 2. And listening to some highlight reel dimensions of these people who were selling everything, giving everything to everybody that had need, and just living towards one another with this incredible, reckless abandon that God had infected their souls with. There'd be other places in the New Testament that I could read the New Testament church and look out at what I've known as church experience and go, wow, <laughs> wow, wow, we come short of that, don't we? And you'd, you'd almost, you know, and just shut the doors, right? But I'm pretty sure he's not reading the Corinthians when he writes this thought. Because when I read the Corinthians, I don't go, wow. I go, hmm, sounds familiar. <laughs> but here's one of the reasons I think Corinthians is extremely helpful. Right? Acts chapter 2 Right on the heels of the death, burial, resurrection, giving of the Spirit. God is at work. God is moving. There are things being explained to us from that setting. 
Fast forward 20-something years, and now you show up in a typical church meeting in Corinth. Typical church meeting in Corinth. And, and what we're about to learn has a lot to do with this dimension of coming together as a church. The Corinthians are coming together as a church. It, it, it's going to highlight all kinds of problems and deficiencies and issues. That's what this whole letter keeps being about. They don't seem to be able to come together without having some issues coming together. So part of me can be disillusioned by, hey, you know, we're not this ideal first century church. And then I can read the Corinthians and go, well, yeah, but we are a first century church. Because we have issues. Because we're human beings and we have issues. And something in this passage is seeking to get fixed by Paul. He's trying to adjust this church so they can dwell in the wealth of what they really are as God's people. That's why I called this thing a message on fellowship. All right, you'll see three times, verse 17, this phrase, when you come together. Verse 18, when you come together as a church. Verse 20, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. So, so fellowship is very much about coming together. And, and that in and of itself has its own challenges, right? That the word that's there in the original language, it means to convene. It means to, to depart in company with. We're going to associate with each other, cohabitate, to assemble with, to come together. Right? Now, don't read past those two words too fast because this would be true of fellowship. But, but just think for a second with me. It's true of every relationship that begins to mean something to us in our lives. We come together. Think about those two words with me just for a second. The whole idea that you come, what what does that inform you of? Well, it means that right before that moment or that action, you were over there somewhere. And you were over there. And you were a little bit closer you were way over there. Right, so here's, here's a reality of relationships. That we come from somewhere into them. And, and therein lies part of the challenge of our story. Is I don't come from where you came from. I wasn't raised by your parents. I wasn't raised by your spiritual disciple maker that you were saved underneath their ministry 30, 20 years ago. Uh, I I don't come from your culture. I don't come from... Your personality type. I don't, I don't come from there. Listen, this is why we have the phrase in our vocabulary. I, I don't get where you're coming from. Isn't that what we're saying? You show up with an attitude, with behavior, with values that make you get really animated and do things a certain way. I don't get you. Well, okay. Congratulations. Welcome to being observant. You are, by God's plan, though, coming together. So not only are you coming from different places, the goal is not to get you in the general vicinity of, the goal is to get you together. So, so now you got to touch. Now you got to join. Now you got to be part of something with somebody else who's not like you. And one of the, the most glaring 
issues in this coming together is husbands and wives. Men and women, with all their differences, are going to come from a different place. One's coming from a man's perspective, one's coming from a woman's perspective. And then you add to that, one was raised differently than the other one. You add to that, you grew up in different places. And you are going to leave that and become a together dimension. There's going to be a new defining of you in this togetherness mode. And so you're going to leave something for the sake of being together. Okay, this is fellowship as well. This is what fellowship entails. So if you're wondering sometimes, why is it, why is it hard to be a part of a church? That's why. Because you don't necessarily like the fact that people don't get you. And they don't get where you're coming from. And quite honestly, you don't get where they're coming from. Right? And listen, there are people in the church. I mean, I appreciate getting to hear the variety of feedback and, and input that I get. People's experiences. You know, depending on what tradition you grew up in is, is how often you'll respond to a particular message that you're hearing. Because you're coming from somewhere. And you're coming together to be a part of what God's doing here. And you listen through that grid. And then there's somebody else on the other side of the room who hadn't been in church but four weeks. And guess what? They're coming from somewhere else. And they don't have your baggage or your issues or your history. You're coming from somewhere. But, but recognize you're called together and that's gonna raise its own set of issues and its own set of difficulties but here's why this is so critical right here and you'll notice chapter 11 is about to give way to the, the famous verses on spiritual gifts on love the great love chapter is coming Right? Paul's introducing this coming together. When we get to the end of chapter 14, he's going he's gonna to use the same phrase. He's going to say, when you come together, one of you has a psalm, one has a teaching, one has this gift, one has that. So Paul right now has in his mind, this is about being church. That's what this is about. And so he's going to take that idea and he's going to apply it to the Lord's Supper. He's going to apply it to spiritual gifts. He's going to apply it to how we love each other. He's going to apply it to our meetings when we come together. All right, so this is about to be really unpacked severely. But it's the coming together dimension that's going to matter. So here, here's what I'm going to say about fellowship. Fellowship is relationships that are centered on something in particular. Relationships that have a common basis relationships that are on or that are an an expression of something right so it's all those things it's relationships but it's relationships with those kinds of qualities in them and then there's this unique thing when you come verse 18 when you come together as a church there's something unique about this gathering like no other gathering. And that doesn't mean we don't do other gatherings. It doesn't mean we don't have groups of people that we do life with. But this is unique in here. And it needs to be a category that exists with its own uniqueness and its own value from God. There's something about this that's different than your family. But, but you, you get together with your family, right? You do life with your family. But this is different. And God intended it to be a little bit different that way. There are connections that are going to come into your life through school, through work. You know, people you spend the day with, just doing the routines of life with them. That, that's some kind of a gathering, but, but it's not fellowship. 
It's a different gathering. There are people that are going to show up in certain categories that you have an affinity to. You know, those of us who are in the sports, we remember you know, team relationships and how we were close to the people that we played ball with and did life together with. And some people may even be, have some military serving in their background. They've, they've spent time with people in ways that have kind of joined them together in some ways. Maybe you've got a personal hobby or an interest that really, when you get around somebody that they're interested in that too, you come to life in a certain way. And that's, that's cool. Listen, I'm not down on any of that. None of us should feel awkward about that. But that's not fellowship. Even if it is a really good thing that we should have in our lives. W.A. Meeks in his book, The First Urban Christians, referring to these first century believers, said the Christian groups were exclusive and totalistic in a way that no club or even pagan cultic association was. Right? There's a lot of meetings that took place in Roman Greek culture. And some of what we're going to learn today is going to give you a little bit of a hint that part of the church's struggle was borrowing the ideas of those meetings and bringing them into their own meetings. Meeks goes on and says, Baptism signaled for Pauline converts an extraordinary, thoroughgoing re-socialization in which the sect was intended to become virtually the primary group for its members, supplanting all other loyalties. Listen, that, that kind of, that, that's a challenge to what, what we are naturally, to our history. Be ready for that. Be ready for this calling that calls you into something that's at that level. But, you know, naturally, you know, maybe your, your, your bent is, is uh, athletics and so you, you enjoy being around. You get people who are athletic. Maybe your bent is music and musicians and you enjoy those people and you kind of come to life for them and you, you got a connection with them. Uh, listen, this is, this is a calling together that supersedes those things. Listen, don't do the wrong thing with what I just said. Don't act like, oh, okay, so I'm supposed to like, not like musicians if I'm a musician. No, I didn't say that. Like them all you want. Enjoy being with them. But when you come to the church, there's something unique here that supersedes that. With people that you've never even met before. This supersedes black and white. Even though our culture is having such an enormously hard time with that. Your loyalty should not be to white issues if you're white or black issues if you're black. Your loyalty should be to the kingdom of God. And the fellowship that we share with one another. This overcomes the Hatfields and the McCoys, right? I mean, whatever it is that you've got a problem. Oh, I'm with, you know. Whatever you think you're loyal to. This fellowship is supposed to be your basis of loyalty more than anything else that will define us. Here's this high calling that we instantly all share in Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people. Does that mean you never met with people? Does that mean you didn't hang out with anybody? You didn't have a group you were a part of? No. But you weren't doing fellowship. You're just doing something else. But now you are God's people. Together on a mission. There is a, there's an overriding call, a mandate. 
You know, if you join a soccer team, it's for the purpose of playing soccer, isn't it? I mean, if you never get around to soccer, would you all be just kind of scratching your head going, oh, what are we doing? Right? It'd just be weird. You have meetings, you do stuff, you eat ice cream together, whatever, but you never play soccer. Well, there's a reason behind God assembling us together. It's to show forth the excellencies of him. It's to put God and his character and his life on display through the way in which we mingle together. Listen, there are certain things about God that cannot go on display in you by yourself. It needs the presence of another person. And then it might need the presence of several other people. And then it might need the presence of a bunch of people on a mission together with all their Corinthian problems. But if that's a high calling, and it is, then it's worth fixing. It's not worth abandoning. And Paul doesn't abandon it here, even though these guys are in trouble. Right? Now Paul's going to say something here. And I need to make room for this. I don't know that today there's room for this but Paul's going to take us here and and I want to challenge each of us will you go there with him not go there with me I'm not taking you anywhere I'm just following what Paul did here he starts this off in verse 17 and in several other places with with the voice of disapproval the apostle's going to show up and and quite honestly almost in as harsh of a way as possible he's going to advertise that he's disapproving Right? I, verse 17, I do not commend you. Commended you in other things. But I do not commend you in this. You, verse 17, you're making things worse. Anybody feeling good about this? Verse 27, you're doing things in an unworthy manner. I said, the Holy Spirit is inspiring Paul to show up in the world of the Corinthians and to make sure they're in touch with that. Make sure you feel that. The way you're doing this, it's an unworthy manner. He's even shocked, right? Verse 22, what? Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? I mean, it's almost like this, you're blowing my mind kind of a thing in Paul's presentation. So Paul wanted them to hear the shock in his voice, almost the shame, if you will. Ben Witherington says, Paul begins by expressing mock disbelief that factitious could be ha- factitiousness could be happening. The function of such a statement is to shame the audience, since it implies that the behavior in question is so inappropriate that the report of its occurrence should not be true. It's hard not to feel the the shock of Paul's approach here today. That Paul would intentionally use words in such a way that made people stop in their tracks and, and feel accused, like they're falling short, like they're failing of something. But but that's what Paul's words are going to do. And, you know, if, if we study the culture there a little bit, we might could get some benefit from it here. Um, you know, the Corinthian culture, the Roman culture in particular, particular it, it was a, a praise and shame culture. Praise being the thing that they're after. I want to be spoken highly of. I want to be approved of. I want to be something in the eyes of others. So that's the goal. And, and I think that's part of the reason why Paul sounds the way he does. I will not praise you in this. Because it was common to seek that. 
Matthew Malcolm says, the desire for praise and approval rather than shame was very strong in Roman society. As the inscriptions from the Corinthian marketplace below illustrate. So he's got this storyline of these inscriptions that if you walked into the common marketplace. Kind of like what we do with uh, when, when governments build something. You know, you get to know who the mayor was and who the architect was, who the engineer was. And that's a plaque that's put up. Well, that's where this comes from. Honor was given for accomplishment in civic, political, religious, and competitive settings. Paul's insistence that he will not grant the Corinthians praise for their conduct when they come together may indicate that their segmentations at the common meal were an attempt to jostle for honor and praise. So this quest, this desire to be spoken highly of, to be praised, was it finding its way into the Corinthian church meetings? To where that was a value that was operating so that they came together in order to have a position in the church that advanced who they were. Can you imagine Christians could do that? Yeah, unfortunately. Let me say say this. The the Bible transcends culture in the way it speaks to us. It it doesn't subscribe to cultures when it speaks. And, and, And that's relevant because the culture will help you and I have ears to hear certain things. And then it'll, it'll also teach us to shut down certain things. Right, so, um, you know, America has got a unique culture to it. You know, eastern part of the world has a unique culture to it, right? So, so there's, in the eastern world, there is, there is more of a shame dimension that you can be spoken to in a way that's shame. It's about honor and shame comes into the way in which people interact with information in their lives. America is, has become much more an esteem and affirmation culture. So, so what guides us in what we will and won't say is, is, does it build esteem? Does it offer affirmation? So that's valued uh, throughout history, throughout the world. You know, different cultures. There, there are stoic cultures that, that don't show a lot of emotion, don't have a lot of outward demonstration in them. Uh, can I just tell you, you, know, you wouldn't want that culture defining for you what your worship experience looks like. But, you know, maybe you're, I don't know, maybe you're German and, you know, we're just, we're just a little stoic. We're just a little staid. Um, but what are you going to do when the Bible calls for you not to be that way? It calls for you to shout and dance and celebrate and be undignified. You, all you British people, what are y'all going to do? Amen. Uh-huh. Amen. Yeah, see, he has, he's broken his loyalties to Britain. It's official. He has cast off the king. Um, You know, in some ways, the the Bible is pulling us into God's design for humanity, not the local subscription version of it. So God is speaking sometimes in ways. So so here's a rather unpopular way for Paul to engage these folks. He's he's being a bit negative. Uh, He's calling on them to do something here, verse 28, verse 31, that may not be a featured element of our culture, right? Verse 28, let a person examine himself then and so eat. So you're going to come together. As a matter of fact, we're going to do this next week. We're going to come together to have communion. And Paul is going to associate with that communion celebration. He's going to bring an idea with that. When you do that, examine yourself. Right, so part of me wants to say, it's like, well, not like killing the party, Paul. <laughs> what do you think I'm going to find when I examine myself, Paul? Am I going to walk away impressed? Am I going to find good news there? 
uh, that doesn't seem to stop Paul from encouraging. As a matter of fact, he says it in verse 31. If we judge ourselves... So this is Paul inviting us into communion with God and fellowship with one another. And he says, you know, part of that is examining yourself and judging yourself. Our culture doesn't do that well. Our culture is very much a victimization culture. So what victimization cultures do is they stare out trying to figure out what has everybody else done that's turned my life into this. So it doesn't, it doesn't do self-examination to say, what did I do? What's been operating in me? What contribution am I making to the realities of my life? What's motivating me? It doesn't want to do that. It, it wants to shift the blame. It wants to be defensive. It's rare to talk to someone who owns their own issues. Instead, there's always a defense mechanism in place, right? We become aware. You have a conversation. Husbands and wives, we do this to each other all the time. The second there's this sense of, can I point out to you something that's not pleasing me? Well, you always, you know, yeah, well, I could do that if the people around here would just, right? There's always this sense of, I haven't noticed that about me. I've noticed this about you, though, and I've noticed this about that person and that person and that person. We don't do this well. And some might argue, should we even do it at all? Should we do this? Should we go inside and be introspective and and look at the innards and what's on the inside of me? Is that a healthy thing to do? Is the Bible prescribing something to us here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that's not a good thing for you to actually be doing? Does Paul and the Holy Spirit need to get a revelation from modern psychology as to whether or not this is actually a healthy thing for humans to do? Now listen, I'm not talking about unhealthy introspection and self-absorption. And quite honestly, that's more related to self-pity than it is to self-analysis. If you find yourself trapped in there, and this is a hard thing to be honest about, It may be because I'm trying to make a case for self-pity. And when I do that, I'm going to get you off of me with that. I'm going to get the analysis off of me. But the Bible doesn't act like that's a bad thing here. That we actually would do a little bit of self-analysis. right? And it's going to say it in multiple other places. 2 Corinthians 13.5, the Corinthians are going to be told this again. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes to them, Examine yourselves. To see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you. Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. So in an interesting way, you're going to discover a couple of things here. You're going to do some introspection, Corinthians. And you might discover Christ is in you. Did you know you could find that when you look inside? That's pretty good news right there. I'd like to be able to look inside and find out God is at work. God is here. God is on the scene. I'm not the same person I was two years ago, 10 years ago, 10 minutes ago. God is at work. You know, you can look inside your life and find the fingerprints of God himself. And it will bring you an awareness that God is actually at work in your life. But the other side of this in 2 Corinthians is you might look inside and not find that. 
Don't you want to know that? Why is it that we have become convinced this is a bad thing to do? Don't do this. Don't go looking inside. Look in verse 32. It says, when we are judged, right? So there is this judge yourselves dimension. And when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. All right, how, how many guys would say, Keith, when I go to do whatever that Bible verse is instructing me to do, I, I'm, I'm half a step away from condemnation. That's where it goes for me. I look inside and I feel condemned. I feel condemned. Uh, all right, I get that that's your experience. Can you just read this Bible verse with me here? When we are judged by the Lord, so that's helpful to know, judge yourselves is, is also going to be accompanied by the Lord with you in that judgment. So the, the Lord's going to help you. And does everybody know that the Holy Spirit is given to this world to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment? That, that this introspection is never on your own. The Holy Spirit is a guide in this. And so if we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we are not condemned. So you don't avoid condemnation by avoiding this. It's actually a healthy thing to do. The Holy Spirit will take us into this place. And then when we encounter something there, there is this discipline dimension. We've, we've seen that word before, right? Discipline is part of discipleship. That, that word is tucked away in there. There's, there's an aspect of being a Christian that has discipline attached to it. Um, and in some of the other areas of our lives, we, we love that word. And we're grateful for it. Discipline. How many, how many of you athletes here that are good at anything? Not the ones who think they are, but the ones who really are good <laughs> at something athletic. Uh, how, many of you, how many of you like... Are musicians, you're the same here. Uh, how many of you like the non-disciplined version of your game? You know, when you sit around, eat Cheetos a lot, don't ever get out, you're out of shape, can't hit a shot if you wanted to because you haven't spent any time in the gym. How many of you like that version of you? It's like you just go out and you play the game. It's like, ah, man, four air balls, or at least I hit the goal twice. I'm on, baby, yeah, because I don't like that discipline word. Listen, when I was playing sports, I lived in a gym. I lived in a gym. I didn't feel condemned by the fact that I had a bad game. I shot poorly in that last game. I, I saw that and I, and I went in the gym, shot more, shot more free throws, shot more shots, worked out more, got in better shape. I liked the disciplined version of me. I didn't like the undisciplined version. I mean, you got musicians, you're the same way. Right? You want to be excellent at something, you want to be average at something. See, in this category, you're not, no, bring on the discipline. <laughs> yeah, hours and hours and hours of practice. I mean, how many guys appreciate doctors who might have discipline in their lives? <laughs> you know, somebody just, you walk into the doctor's office and he's, you know, he's got up there all the F's and D's that he got in school, right up there on the wall, and he just kind of, you know, puts on his gloves. Yeah, sit down. <laughs> Oh, gosh, I don't know what's out there these days. I haven't read a medical journal in forever. You know, you, you want this guy? Quite honestly, he doesn't even like his own job anymore. Do you like the undisciplined version of the Christian life? Truly, I mean, do you really like it? I don't like it. And 
God knows we don't like it. And so he actually says, you know, when you have this moment where I interact with the insides of you and I'm in that and you are judging correctly and you are dealing correctly with things, you're going to avoid condemnation because you're actually going to be able to put something on that's going to make a difference. And Paul's not telling these people this to waste their time. He's actually telling them something. If you guys do this, it'll fix your fellowship. And you'll experience something as a result that's going to tell the story of God in a magnificent way. This is helpful. And it's all over scripture. Galatians 6 verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, don't be surprised. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself. Right, the King James says, considering thyself. Consider yourself. New American Standard says, look to yourself, in that phrase, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Right? Okay, this is a fellowship verse right here, right? It's when, when fellowship, the wheels come off of someone's life. Bear one another's burdens. All right, because so now we're together and we're doing this together. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work. Are you afraid to test your own work? Is this a bad idea? Is Paul hawking something that really is going to hurt you? It's going to hurt you. Now, I I get, I get that maybe we don't always do these things well. And maybe we do them in an unbiblical way and they they do feel hurtful. Can I I just ask you to do this? I've I've been asking folks to do this more and more because you can't leave these things in disrepair. Right, so if you're a person here this morning and, and your only sort of recipe in your head is self-analysis equals condemnation. That's the next thing for you. Self-analysis equals condemnation. Do not wait any longer before setting up an appointment to come see one of the pastors or the elders. You cannot function as a Christian if you can't do what these verses are telling you to do. Because everywhere you get a together dimension... This element of you is spilling over into that. And if you can't look inside, how are you going to help anybody else? So if somehow this has gone bad for you, and it can go bad for a number of reasons. A lot, most of the reasons that it goes bad is our own personalities. But if this has gone bad for you and you can't do this, do not keep waiting. Come, come and find out how can I fix this. What can, I, what can I learn and appropriate that's going to help me to do what these verses are calling me to do? There is, there's an aspect in this Galatians passage, right? If anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But each one tests his own work. This is all being done for those of you who are going to go try to help somebody else. The same way we come together in communion, there's a sense that when we come together, there's something about me that I need to be appropriately aware of. If, if I'm going to be married, there's something about me I've got to be appropriately aware of. Listen, I have my own designer set of weaknesses, of temptations, of sins that, that are more frequent than others. Do, do I know that about myself before my wife has to put up with it? 
before you have to put up with it. I, you know, I bring that with me. And self-awareness brings with it as well a massive dose of humility. To the degree that you are not self-aware, your dealing with others is going to be affected by that. Your lack of care and compassion and patience with them is going to be severely affected because you're just not aware of yourself. You know, you don't, you don't smell your own odor. Everybody else has got B.O. but you. That makes it really hard to do relationships with, right? And this is all over the Bible, right? Matthew chapter 7, verse 3. Why do you seek the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? What's this verse trying to fix? It's trying to fix something. It's trying to get you to notice something. What's it trying to get you to notice? The log in your own eye. Is that a bad thing? Not in this context, it's not. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, When there is the log in your own, you hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. See how relevant this is to coming together? If I don't learn these things, but I'm going to come together. But, you know, I'm I'm coming together and I got like this, this big plank sticking out of my face. You know, and I just walk up to everybody and boom, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, You're bleeding. Why are you bleeding? I don't even know why. Well, because your plank just whacked me in the head. Uh, Oh, I'm sorry. I got close because I was trying to get that speck. Has anybody told you about the speck right here? There's this boom speck right there that boom, uh, I'm just trying to help you. Boom, get it out. This is how we do life. And the Bible comes along and says, you know, I've called you into something. I've pulled you together to be something together that you're never going to be if you get all this stuff wrong. You will not serve each other, relate to each other, be vulnerable to each other, do fellowship with each other if this is all foreign material for you. I think I wrote this in your outline. Other clarity requires self-clarity. Self-awareness is needed in order to have healthy relationships By avoiding this, you are cruel to yourself and everyone around you. And if you're saying, but I can't go there, Keith, I just can't go there. The Holy Spirit is telling you to go there. So you can go there, and you can go there in a way that's actually going to produce something good. No matter what anybody else has told you, no matter what psychology today has told you, No matter what your personal feelings about this has told you. This is the Bible telling us it's safe to do this. And it's actually helpful if we will. Now, let me give us a little bit of a a clue here about about relational adjustments. All right, this won't take but a sec. Uh, Because there's, there's, there's always reasons why certain things are having to be talked about in the Bible. Right, so, and that's true for us too, right? We're doing life... And up here is this dysfunctional stuff, and the Bible points it out. But, but we all got reasons for, for why aren't we doing this, right? So, well, that was true for them. So, verse 19, it's a certain dimension here of, of owning these divisional factors. In the first place, when you come together, I hear that there are, verse 18, I hear that there are divisions among you. 
And I believe it in part. So, so apparently there is an us and them element to people coming together. We, we can do the us, but we can't do the them kind of a thing, right? So let me give you a little bit of the, the setting here in what's happening in this particular meal, right? When they would show up, do I have my, my Roman villa here? Image? All right, so this, this is the Roman house, typical Roman house. All right, so the street is right here, right, running across the front. The shops are in front, so you're probably a, some kind of a, a tradesman or an owner of a business, etc. So part of your house, your property, it, it's got people coming in and out of it, uh, part of it. So you walk in through that door there, and you have this little area called the atrium that you come into first, and then there's walls all around this. This is a cutout. So you got this little area where some, some water's collected and kept, big bedrooms there. And this little room called the triclinium, which is the dining room. So, so here's what would happen in the typical Roman gathering. And these, these gatherings were common. They were part of their lifestyle. Uh, they, they had this practice that they would throw a big dinner party... And then at the end of the dinner party, there'd be some kind of entertainment that'd be provided. And quite often through the Greek-Roman mixture, the entertainment was a philosopher, a teacher, who would be both part uh, interesting to listen to, uh, and maybe he's funny as well. And, but he's a good speaker. And so after dinner, after the big party, and folks got together and ate well together and drank, then there would be this person who would come speak. That's probably where Paul did a lot of his ministry. In these kinds of gatherings, he was the invited speaker to come to those settings. And then when these folks became a church, they, they had nothing to model themselves after. It's not like they said, oh, we should build a building with a steeple on it and meet on Sunday mornings. That didn't exist anywhere in the world. So they were used to getting together, getting, getting together and having meals, getting together and have somebody talk to them. So more the likely that first century when somebody got saved in Corinth who was a wealthy individual, he had a nice place. He had a nice place with some space in it. So they held the meetings there. But, but that became a little bit of a challenge because that well-to-do guy, you know, he was a little politically connected, right? He was, he was a patron. He had a lot of people under him. He was a guy with great respect. He could, he could control quite a bit of the tone of what was happening in that meeting. Maybe not so much the elders, but, but he and his own life and the way he did things. Right? So what you'd do is you'd show up for a party. And the common reality in these party settings was that there was the haves and the have-nots. In a Roman party, there would be the, the well-to-do. The, the patron class of folks. And then sometimes they would have these parties where they would invite everything from, you know, lesser class to freedmen. Freedmen were people who once were slaves, but they'd worked their way into just being freed people now. Slaves were even invited to some of these events. But they didn't get treated exactly the same way when they came. They were treated differently. And, you know, we don't do much like this, you know, but I can remember growing up. You remember growing up when, when your parents threw a big Christmas party and you were the kid? There was a kid version of the party and there was an adult version of the party. Remember that? 
Right? The, in the adult version, there's all the fine foods and, you know, the alcohol's flowing. You know, the kids' version are like hot dogs on a stick, you know, and, and you sort of weren't allowed into the room with the big people. It's all you little people were whisked off. You had your own special table, and we're going to make it sound like you're really having something special. But if you ever compared, you know you were getting ripped off, right? <laughs> Well, that's kind of what's happened. Let me see this next slide. In the triclinium, this is, this is what's going on in the dining room. Right, so you've got, all, you've got a band in there. You've got everybody lying down. And, and most dining rooms were arranged just like this. And so the size of them were just big enough to where about nine people in each of these, three in each direction, could recline at the table and be served some really luxuriant food. And so this, this is the setting, right? Anthony Thistleton says this. He says, it's quite clear that when more than nine or ten people came to dinner, the poorer or less esteemed guests would be accorded space, not in the already occupied triclinium, but in the scarcely furnished atrium, which functioned in effect as an overflow for those who were in the eyes of the host, lucky to be included at all. The quality of food, drink, service, and comfort would be of a higher order in the triclinium, especially if some in the atrium could arrive only after the best of the meal was over. How did that happen? Well, the freedman who worked a labor job and the slave who worked under somebody else's ownership, they had to work and they could show up when they could show up. But if you were a patron, if you were a person with money, you set your own hours, right? So if you had a church meeting tonight, you could get there early. You could bring the best of the food. So all the early guys showed up and they're hanging out in the, in the dining room. And they're eating the best of the food. And the next thing you know, here comes the second class Christians who come and there's not much left. Uh, they're going to all gather 30, 40 of them in that atrium area. And they're going to be eating something totally different. And Paul's like, what on earth are you doing? Do you know the statement you're making by what you're doing? You you have maintained the value system that you had when you were a lost Roman. And you've brought it into the church. As though what makes you special is is your place of prominence in society. And you've let everybody else know that they're not in. They're not in your group. They're not like you. They don't measure up. They're eating something less and being treated like they're something less. This freaks Paul out. He says, this is what on earth are you doing? Because he knows there's a statement here that in Christ there's neither slave nor free, Jew or Gentile, male nor female. This idea that you look on another human being and you treat them like they're less than you. What? That's what he's outraged about. But you know, before we, you know, again, the Corinthians are always interesting to pound on when we look at the way they do things. You know, quite honestly, human nature here. Right? If you're a wealthy person, you've gotten used to being around wealthy people. That's who you do life with. They're like you. You get them. You get their jokes. They do stuff that you're comfortable with. You get where they're coming from. And then come the Jews. If you're a Roman, you don't get the Jew for sure. In come the slave, who's just lucky to be in your presence, by the way. You don't get where they're coming from. But in fellowship, we have come together. We are united and relating to each other. 
So, so herein lies, this is just a, a, a tip for why is it that we have this struggle with coming together, right? Here's a relational adjustments require us to address two things in your outline. And you gotta address these things, otherwise this is just a message that doesn't go anywhere. Uh, one, what we're comfortable with and drawn to. This is where I come from, right? What am I comfortable with? What am I drawn to? Well, I'm drawn to the athletes in the room. I'm drawn to the, to the blue-collar worker in the room. I, I'm drawn to the guy who's got money. Why? Have you looked inside to figure out why it is that you have set up borders and boundaries around who you will fellowship with and who you will not? And, and in modern culture... There's certain morals that operate a certain way. There's certain dress elements. There's certain styles of doing life and family that that's what we're comfortable with. And I come into a church like this and there's a bunch of people who are different than me in those categories. And I don't get where you're coming from. And I put a wall up and you eat over there and I eat over here. We just do it a little differently than they did it. A little different value system operating in us. Here, the second thing is what we're uncomfortable with and what we're avoiding. All right, so there's things that we're comfortable with. That's where I'm coming from. But there's a togetherness that there's something about you that I'm not comfortable with. And so I'm going to avoid you. I'm going to limit how I interact with you. And Paul looks at this and he says, wait, time out. In Christ, this massive miracle has happened and God has made everybody to stand on an equal playing field welcomed by God the Father. There is no distinction among you. That's not true though, is it? Practically speaking, that's just a problem. Right? So there's a need for fellowship to get fixed. Right? If that's going to happen, verse 21, just, I'm just taking this, these, here's the problems that are here, right? Verse 21, it says, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. So they show up with an individual mindset. They're not other-minded. So they show up with their own lunch pail, with their fine dining, if you're on the upper end. And you go ahead with your own meal. Right? This is that self-awareness dimension that they were living a life that I'm aware of me. And I brought something for me. And what about the guy who can't bring anything? What about the person who's embarrassed in the rags they're going to show up in for that meeting? And they don't have hardly anything. And they're embarrassed by the canned good that they brought. Because that's all they got. Where's the mindset that you who have something make that person feel like you've got everything. And we have everything in common. Why won't they do that? Because they're not other-minded. you might have to look inside and discover that about yourself. And Paul pointed it out to them. You show up with your own stuff and you feed yourself. You're about you. And this isn't fun stuff to explore, is it? But, but what's the alternative? You want to leave that in place? Just keep doing that? Or to have the Holy Spirit point out to you, that's why you do that. Verse 28. Let a person examine himself. Eric, you can come back up here. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Let a person examine himself. Let a person examine himself. How do you, how do you fix fellowship? How do, you know, th- then this translates. I mean, remember, fellowship is unique. Fellowship is the body of Christ unified around the purpose of God in relationship with each other. 
But we're in relationships all over the place. And some of these things translate into these other settings. So how, how do I fix relational issues? Well, these two things would be very interesting, right? Own your own excessive self-interest. Own the way in which you are too much only worried about yourself. Own that. And secondly, practice self-examination. Become aware that the big log you keep pounding everybody with, pounding your wife with, pounding your husband with, pounding your children with. Beware. Learn that about yourself. And let God replace it with something else. Paul's not ending this thing with, hey, hope y'all all all feel bludgeoned. Uh, No, he calls them to something. Right? Verse 33. Why does Paul share all this? So then, right, I'm not making this point, this is Paul making this point. So then, my brothers, when you come together, wait for one another. Right? Do this differently. So, Paul, if we do what you just said for us to do, we can actually live differently? Yes, exactly. That's why I told you to do it. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. Do we realize that we could actually fix some of these things? Wouldn't that be an awesome thing in our relationships if we could fix the way in which we connect and care that were true in fellowship, that were true in the body of Christ? All right, so in the midst of that point, Paul sticks an explanation of the Lord's Supper because that's what's taking place when they're having their meals together. They're also going to, quote, celebrate the Lord's Supper. And Paul is going to turn to that mixture and say, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. All right, what do you take that to mean? We'll pick it up next week. But what do you take that to mean? That they actually were eating the wrong food? No. What Paul was saying was, when you guys come together, the Lord's Supper is about remembering Christ. And if you're treating each other this way, There is no way you're remembering him. So when you come together, you might be having dinner, but you're not eating the Lord's Supper. Because the Lord's Supper is a remember moment. And it is a remember moment that's transformative on our lives. So that when I look inside and I find, why do I avoid who I avoid? And and why do I only want to be comfortable with this? I will find Christ in such a way that he can deal with those things. And I can become adjusted and be something different to each other. Right? That's what Paul's after in this passage. Let's stand up together. Lord, your word is your word. It is wise. It speaks life. Travels deep into our souls. Lord, we need that. Lord, there are some who are here this morning and the reality of who you are, God who loves us, who is near to us 
a joy that's unspeakable and full of glory, a peace that passes understanding. Lord, these are, these are words that seem to be at a great distance from many. Lord, a means, not the only means, but a means of bringing your presence near to us is fellowship. Our relating to those whom you have placed in the body of Christ with us. It's a means of experiencing your love. It's a means of joy. It's a means of peace that passes understanding. So Lord, we don't want like the Corinthians and can't afford for it to be broken. If it is, Lord, would you give grace to us through this passage and by your spirit for it to be fixed. Let's try and listen for the Lord for a moment. I just want to sense the spirit speaking to each of us. This, this verse speaks about a uniqueness that's set when you come together as a church. And maybe you're here this morning and the as a church part has been lost. It's very weak. It's at a distance. Maybe not understood very well. And the richest coming together for you is outside of the body of Christ. It's different people who have like interests with you. It's co-workers or classmates. That's, that's where you find the greatest sense of connection. Listen, it's not wrong for you to have connections with those folks. But God wanted something more for you in fellowship. He wanted a deep, meaningful, abiding connection with others who he has placed in the body of Christ with you so that when you come together as a church is a rich welcomed wonderful phrase and so maybe this morning the Lord's just trying to get that on your radar he's just saying have you thought about the church that way Do the people that are in the church with you, do they show up in your life this way? Do you show up in their lives this way? Maybe maybe this morning what God wants you to do with this verse is to fix fellowship in that sense. To just ask the Lord. Maybe do that right now. Lord, give, give me a passion for this. Give me a love for what you so value that is so needed in my own life and, and I'm needed in the lives of others. Because i got people in my world. I want them to know your love and your nearness and your joy and the peace that passes understanding. God, I want that for them. Lord, is fellowship part of that? Am I part of that for others? And are they that for me? For every person who's here this morning who maybe fellowship has just fallen off the priority list. God, would you fix that this morning? Would you give us the courage to admit that, but would you give grace to fix that for us? If you're here this morning and 
And what Paul is suggesting as a means of healing, that that there would be self-examination. There would be a a spirit-guided self-judgment in your walk. If you're here this morning and you can't remember the last time that's happened, or you just feel this aversion to that, there's something in you that says, no, I don't think it's good to go there. Just uncomfortable with that. Lord, would you just just ask the Lord for some grace and some help right now? If you don't see this, if you think this was not in the Bible, then you can't ask for it. Wouldn't be right for you to ask for it. But if you just saw this on the pages of Scripture, inspired by the Holy Spirit, an invitation to the inside, that would be healthy, that would be good, that would bring healing and wholeness and better relationships If you just saw that, could you ask God for grace to move in that direction right now? Can you just voice that to him? Ask him. Lord, I can't remember the last time I've done this. I've been afraid to do it. But God, this morning I hear, I I hear through the word. Your word settles these issues for me. It's, it's, It's what you have said. And So Lord, would you help me? Lord, give me grace and courage to go into places that I've been afraid to go. God, give me wisdom to go in a way that is productive and fruitful and and doesn't land in condemnation, but brings forth a discipline that bears fruit in my life. Lord, I love the fruit. I want that. God, would you make us fruitful? God, pruning brings increased fruit. Lord, would you let us welcome that? Would you give grace to us to welcome your pruning in our lives? You will lead us. You will guide us. You will make this fruitful. God, we want to be this church. Lord, next week we're going to come together and we're going to celebrate communion. God, I pray that we would come like never before. Like never before. We would come with what you inspired us to have in mind. With an incredible celebration of what it means to remember Christ through this meal. I thank you for the grace of your word. We welcome and receive it from you, Lord, this morning.